from Podcast One. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Justice. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Please, please, I can't breathe. Please, man, please, man. What you're hearing are the final painful moments of George Floyd's life. Floyd, an African-American man, died face down on a dirty street in Minneapolis with a white policeman's knee on his neck and the knees of two other white policemen pinning his torso and legs to the pavement. His cries for help and his eventual brutal death ignited protest, violence, and destruction across the country. It even triggered protest around the world. Here's a cross-section of reaction from people of different ethnic backgrounds. My name is Jesslyn. I am a multiracial woman raised primarily by white people. I live in Oakland, California, and the killing of George Floyd was heartbreaking and also infuriating, not only because it's a gross abuse of power and violence again, but because our community members have been surviving and grieving and witnessing and calling out this injustice for literally hundreds of years. My name is Scott Stewart and I'm a white American who lives in Northwestern Pennsylvania. From my perspective, anyone who watches the video of the killing of George Floyd and is not disturbed, upset, shocked, angered, and outraged has a problem. From my perspective, this type of behavior has no place in American law enforcement and the officer who killed Mr. Floyd and those who did not stop him must be held accountable for their actions. My name is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera. I'm an associate professor at the Charles School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. I was born and raised in Mexico. I have a green card and I am a Latina. After the George Floyd protest, I have realized how divided the United States is. The United States is a great country with great people. But at the same time, I have realized that there is racism and discrimination. The country is very divided. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. On each episode of the Colors podcast, we're going to speak candidly with each other and ask questions of each other, some of which may be difficult from time to time, and we'll answer your questions too. And we'll have guests as well. The objective here is to create a judgment-free forum to discuss race in America. Now, we begin our discussion. This is Chris Kaur. I'm the white guy. About uh, 30 years ago or so, my friend J.J. Green and I did a program on a local Washington radio station called Black and White. It came about after the Rodney King beatings in Los Angeles, and we found ourselves having interesting discussions about race. And we finally decided, you know, as interesting as this is in the office, it might make a pretty good radio show. So we put it on the air. And we're back doing it again because, uh, well, the times call for it. So that's where we are right now, JJ. That's right, Chris. And uh, I just want to say, first of all, obviously, I'm black. And it's been a long time. And I'm happy that we've finally been able to do this. I know we've talked about it before. 
and the time just didn't seem to be right. But it seemed to me, Chris, that we really didn't have any more time. We need to talk about this. So who better than us, huh? Uh, Well, we'll find out. Let's give it a shot. You know, it's funny. You said that now is the time. And Governor Northam of Virginia said now is the time to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee in downtown Richmond. I've never discussed this with you before, and I really don't have a position on it. But I am curious. You are from Virginia, not that far from Richmond. I'm sure you've been past that statue many times in your life. Um, How do you feel about their taking down the statue? Is it important? Does it matter? Um, tell me what you feel about that, because I'm really curious to know. Well, it's not going to fix anything um, that has led up to this. What it does do is it addresses the lingering uh, agony that African-Americans and, and people of other other colors as well associate with that statue, with the Confederacy um, and with Virginia and certainly as an African-American um, the whole connection to slavery. And this statue of Robert E. Lee is a reminder of that. Now, people will say, and you know, I can't disagree with them, that this does not um, fix all that's been done and all the hurt and all of the really terrible history of slavery. But what it does do is it brings some measure of comfort to people who've as you said, uh, well, had to look at it and had to see it and had to live with the question about, well, why is it still here? And so that's that's what it sort of does. It addresses well, let, it. Let me ask it a different way then. So when you were growing up and when you were a younger man and you were driving through Richmond, you saw it. Did it offend you? Did it bother you then? I'm just curious. No. And here's why. Because I was ignorant. And a part of that had to do with the fact that I had not experienced life and did not know all of the realities of mm. life. And I was a studious person in high school, and my family taught me well. Once I learned about them, once I graduated from being a, a kid to a man, and from an, somebody that was focused on sports and and girls and all those <laughs> things that young men uh, often focus on, cars and just having fun, and started thinking about the serious things in life, then I started asking myself questions. Why is that there? Why is this street named what it is? Why is this state this way? Why are these laws this way? Yeah, uh, and I'll give you one uh, where my eyes have been open, where I was ignorant and uh, didn't really understand. And this has happened fairly recently. Um, if you remember Martin O'Malley, when he was running for president four years ago, the former governor of Maryland was at a uh, speaking somewhere. And, and somebody said something about Black Lives Matter, and he said, yes, they do, and White Lives Matter, and Asian Lives Matter, and he got booed off the stage. And at the time, I thought, well, that's really kind of mean to do. I mean, I think everybody, every life is precious. But then I started thinking about it just recently because of this situation with George Floyd. Black Lives Matter is is now. And when you say Black Lives Matter, it doesn't mean that white lives don't matter. It just means right now, black lives are in trouble and in danger and something has to be done. It's the same thing about save the rainforest. It doesn't mean we don't care about other forests. It means right now the rainforest is endangered. And I think that's, for me, and I don't know if that's trite or if that's an epiphany or what it is, but I had not really looked at it that way until I realized 
Yeah, you're not excluding other things by saying black lives matter. It doesn't mean that other lives don't matter. How does that strike you? Well, the, the thing is, Chris, you have to look at it from a broader point of view, and you, it seems like you've gotten there. The issue with Black Lives Matter is not to try to say that other lives don't matter. It's basically to say, hey, we matter just as much as anything else and any other ethnicity matters. At some point, we have to address the fact that African-American men are dying disproportionately, that African-American communities are suffering uh, because there are not the, the same kind of resources available to them, the, the same opportunities aren't available to them. And people have been talking about this for years. And I think some people, one, either didn't understand that and two, were threatened by that. But, you know, frankly speaking, the people that think that way quite often it's going to be hard yeah i don't know if they were threatened they don't think they just didn't get it i mean it just i mean martin o'malley I don't well think yeah no was i mean threatened. he was just he was trying to say well I, I, we don't need to be to belabor it i just it just something that occurred to me but okay can, can but I, i'm not but i'm not saying o'malley was threatened i'm saying there yeah. are others who aren't as thoughtful as o'malley who yeah. wouldn't spend the time who wouldn't know about that there are those who are focused on looking for divisions. That's the real thing here, man. People are looking, a lot of people look for divisions. Divisions are not what we need. We need unity right now. You're listening to Colors. Hi, I'm Thomas Warren. I'm a black man from Inglewood, California. And my first thought of seeing George Floyd die on that video was anger and that his life didn't matter enough to those four officers to want to spare it so he could see his day in court, which led to my second feeling of despair and just wanting to shake people and say that black folks don't want you to feel sorry for us. We just want some empathy and understanding that we want our lives to matter enough to be protected. And I'm hoping we can get there one day. I'm Stephanie Gaines Bryant, a news anchor for WTOP Radio. I'm also a wife and mother of four and an African-American woman. I wrote in a recent column for WTOP.com that I fear for my three sons. I wrote that I worry that their unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness will be stripped away by a gunshot or a chokehold administered by police officers who don't believe that all men are created equal. I pray that where George Floyd's breath ended, the breath of justice begins. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America, with Chris Kaur and J.J. Green. I, th this is kind of gets to the George Floyd situation. Um, and I was thinking and talking to my wife about this. Um, and as, as a white person, if I see a police officer, unless he's got his red lights on behind me to give me a ticket. So I see a, you know, a police officer around, uh, which I do frequently. Um, I feel safer. I feel more comfortable. I don't feel threatened in any way. I like seeing police officers around because they're there to protect me. Now, I know you real well. And I remember asking you a question similar to this back when we were doing our show, you say, 28 years ago. And so when you see, when you, J.J. Green, you personally see a police officer, does it make you nervous, upset, worried, uh, Come safer. on, Chris. 
You know, well, you already know the answer to that, man. Right. So, so you're dressed up nicely, and you're driving to the radio station, and you just see a police <laughs> officer anywhere around there, and especially if he looks like he might pull you over. And are you worried for your life? No, not on, not in those situations. But the point being, Chris, I don't have the luxury of not thinking about that. I don't have the luxury of going through that moment without even giving a passing thought to how those mm -hmm. police are going to react. There's a time when walking down the street in Wisconsin Avenue or Pennsylvania Avenue being very well dressed before the days of Uber, trying to get yeah. a taxi cab, and I couldn't get one. And it, I, I remember that this is what we discussed. I remember you're saying this and it, it that that they wouldn't pick you up, but they probably pick me up if we were dressed the same and standing roughly the same place. Yeah, this is about how other people view us. What took place in Minneapolis didn't take place because black men or men of color or women of color um, are comfortable when police are around these days because exactly what you said. You live in a different world when it comes to what the police mean to you. And mm -hmm. you know, what's really interesting is I work every day with the police in national security. That's exactly what my job is. I have tons of police sources and, you know, I work with police in, in the intelligence world. And my whole job is based on developing relationships with them. And it's important to be able to engage with them in a trustful manner. But driving down the road, walking down the street, especially going to a place that I'm not familiar with or being, I'm looking over my shoulder. And the, the truth of the matter is, if you're not looking over your shoulder, then you need to have a conversation with someone if you're an African-American man based on the way things have been. Does it matter if the police officer is black or white? To be truthful about it, um, in certain places, in certain states, certain times of day, um, it does matter. I, uh, I mean, I'll tell a story. Um, this is somebody that I worked with, um, a black salesperson at a radio station, a real nice guy, friend of mine. Um, he told me the story once, and it was hard for me to believe. He, before he was in Washington, D.C., he worked in Los Angeles. And he lived in Beverly Hills. And he went to the radio station. He had a very nice car. He lived in Beverly Hills. And he told me very frequently he would be pulled over in Beverly Hills and ask, you know, like, what are you doing here and stuff. And he would end up having to take his wallet out, show his address and talk to the. And I said that happened more than once. He said, oh, it happened. And this was probably at least 20 years ago when he told me this. And I was just stunned by that. And again, shame on me for not knowing better, but I was, I, I, it was just hard to believe. And, you know, beautifully dressed guy made good money. I just, I couldn't believe it. So bad on me for that. Okay. You go ahead and fire away. Well, no bad, man. It's just the fact that you're being honest about this, you know, is part of why I think this program, this attempt to do this is going to work. And before I get into my questions, I want to just take a minute to tell people listening we want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. We want to know what your experiences are because this is the first show. And the first show is designed to set the table, 
so yeah. that everybody has a, a seat at the table and that everyone has an opportunity because we want to hear from you about your experiences today. And we'll tell you how to do that shortly. But Chris, my yes. question first to you, how do we know when it's time to walk away or should there be a time when we walk away? Years ago, when we were doing that other show, we both were getting hate mail and there were threats and this, that, and the other. Um, and it did. Yeah, we also got a we got a we got a little love mail too. I have to say, and what was there, I was always moved by the number of people that I ran into, white people, who said, "Man, I love that show, Black and White, that you do." And I'm like, really? That's I'm I'm, I'm glad, thank yeah. you. And but they were and these are white folks saying, "Yeah, you know, we need to be talking about this stuff." Yeah. Which. Yeah, you know, here, here's uh, just. Can I give you a thought? I have. I don't mean to. Well, let me let me just finish this. Podium. Let me just finish this point, and then yes. Sure. So, at the end of the day, as we work through this program, and as people listen to it, and the nation works through its issues with race, there has to be a dialogue, and it has to be way, way, way beyond just us doing it at all costs. It has to continue in order for things to improve, whether it's African American or or Caucasian or whether it's Latino or Asian, or any race on earth, any combination of races. We need to know who the other is. Awareness. Yeah, so this kind of ties into what you're saying, JJ, is, um, you know, I just read this someplace, and and it was interesting. Um, It is not the job of black people to educate white people about race. However... If black people don't educate white people about race, how are we ever going to learn? Does that make any sense? Sort of, but you know, here's the thing, man. It, that's not something that's only that only African Americans know about because a lot of people study it, you know, and a lot of people know about it, and it's you know, it's not something that is an unknown. I mean, that's this African American. Uh, the African-American race is a gigantic part of American history. I do think it's important for us to talk about, you know, things. Educating each other, it, yeah, that's a part of the process, but not solely and not totally and not fully. I see. Um, did this surprise you that this killing, this awful um, situation with Mr. Floyd, that it occurred in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That, that I have to say, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Iowa originally. I went to school in Wisconsin, so that's kind of my neck of the woods. And I know Minnesota as being um, open-minded, fairly liberal, um, intelligent, uh, educated state. I, I have to say, it, of all the cities in the country, that would have been one at the very bottom of where I would have thought something like this would happen. Is it a surprise you that it was Minneapolis? Sort of, because yes, it's a very diverse place. But honestly, there was so much pent up anger and so much pent up consternation about race relations in America. It could have happened anywhere at any moment. There's nothing, frankly, surprising about any of that except uh, the, 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 the way that scene played out. The streets lined with dozens of people anxiously watching. They were just feet away. Here's a man on the ground pleading with officers to let him breathe, saying, you know, please, please. Plain and simple. He just wanted to breathe. And, you know, interestingly, I noticed as I was watching this video, 
my own breathing, getting ragged and shallow, waiting yeah. for the moment when this officer I, was going to get up. It's incredibly hard to watch. It's it even even but, though I've seen it. But you got to watch it. You got to watch it. Oh, I have. I'm saying oh, have, everybody. It, Everybody's it, got to watch it. I don't. I, I don't. You know, I don't like looking at it any more than you do it. And and maybe for different reasons because you know it's it's embarrassing as a white guy to see a, a an officer doing that, which is completely unnecessary. The thing about it's that I think it's different. I think that it's been going on a lot longer. The difference is now cell phones. And yeah. anything you do in public, you're going to be surrounded by 100 photographers and they're going to get it. Yeah. You're not going to get away with it anymore. And I can tell you something, even though I grew up in Iowa and even though there weren't a lot of black people in Iowa and the few that they were, we, everybody got along. Um, I, I guarantee you that was going on in the 50s and the 60s was. and the 70s. There's nobody to document it. And now it's documented. Of course. And, and that, this stuff's going to stop. Of course. A friend of mine, Thetford Collins. Um, I've known Thedford for 20 plus years. Thedford is a child of the 50s and 60s, and he grew up in Arkansas. And he said the exact same thing that you said. Another friend of mine, his name is the Reverend Ronald Eugene Braxton. And he is uh, an elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And, I, you know, I asked these two gentlemen and, and others about how this incident struck them. And Thedford said... Not again, yeah. you know, and the Reverend right. Braxton said to me, if he had the opportunity to ask uh, a white person that he knew, he would ask that person, what do you tell your family about race? What do you tell your children about race, about engaging and interacting with African-Americans? You know, and I spoke with another person who spoke as well about that. And I did all this in preparation for this show. And, and his statement was, would you denounce everything that's associated with the exclusionary tactics and properties of white supremacy? Uh, and that's a very complicated question, because basically what that says is there are lots of things that fit into what people call white privilege that a lot of people yes. aren't aware of. A lot of people are, but they go on every day. And his question would be, would you denounce all of that? And, you know, frankly, I've spoken to some white friends and they, they say it's impossible to do that because people are at a stage in their life. They've gotten what they've gotten and they're not racist at all. They're, they don't, they're not hateful at all, but they've gotten what they've gotten because of the machinations of society. So asking people to just renounce and give away everything they have because of that is difficult for some people to swallow. But those are the kinds of questions that are coming up from some in both mm -hmm. the black and the white community. Well, the biggest demonstration uh, of that is, is, and it's kind of a silly one, except when you think about it, it's not. Um, and that's the Band-Aids. And if you look, Band-Aids are flesh colored, but they're my flesh. They're not your flesh. Band-Aids were created by Johnson & Johnson, and they said we need to put, have adhesive bandages, and people are going to put on the cuts on their skin, so we want this to look just like their skin. And it never occurred to anybody, you know, we probably should make them in various colors because not everybody's white. And I had not thought about that until this – I mean, this is the only good thing to come out of this George Floyd stuff is it's given me and hopefully other people something to think about. And I thought – I've never in my life thought about that, but that's true. That's a little tiny, insignificant perhaps, but still a demonstrative piece of white privilege. It is, and there's no doubt about it. It is changing. 
but it took a long time for it to change. Just like the Betty Crocker mm -hmm. box, if you remember, the uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> <there, Yes. laughs> that was a few years back. A lot of things have been based on what has been tradition. A lot of things around us, and we haven't complained about it enough. We, I'm saying, collectively as a nation. I mean, there have been voices in. Uh, separate communities that have complained about things that don't necessarily benefit them, but we haven't come together as a nation to protest um, the same issues, the same things, because we've all been working on our own agendas. But I'll tell you this, one thing that I've noticed and I've seen in city after city after city, and I actually had to confirm this with some people to make sure that I wasn't seeing something uh, that wasn't there. In each one of these cities where there were protests, it seemed to me that there were three to one more non-black people protesting, more people of other colors than African-American protesting. In other words, there were a lot of people, a lot of white people there and a lot of Latinos and, and Asian yeah, people. absolutely. Much more so, at least in many of these pictures that I, that I saw, than normally. Um, and I asked myself, what was that? Why is that? And I, I want to ask you that question. Why are there so many more whites participating in these marches? Well, the civil rights uh, era was the you know passion of my youth. I mean, I, I was too young and didn't have the uh, ability to be able to say go down and march in Selma, Alabama, like Maybe I would have uh, years later, but, uh, you know, there were white people involved in the civil rights movement from the beginning. I, I, I'll tell you um, a story that I recently read. I remember it kind of, but it, it's, a, it's illustrative of what you're saying. Uh, in 1968, after Dr. King was assassinated, there were riots in major cities all over the country except for one. And the one is there were no riots, and here's why. Uh, in 1968, Robert Kennedy was running for president. Robert Kennedy said, I want to go into the black area of Indianapolis. I don't want a bunch of Secret Service people around me. I want to go in. I just want to talk. And so here's Bobby Kennedy, little skinny. There's nobody whiter than Bobby Kennedy going into this crowd of angry people in, in Indianapolis. And he stood up on a box or a chair or something. And he started to talk. And he said, look, I know what it's like to lose somebody that I love to an assassin's bullet. And he kept talking off the cuff for a while, half hour or so. And there were no riots in Indianapolis that night. That story, my friend, still gives me chills. So it can be a white guy who understands, who stands up and who speaks out that can have a calming effect and an educating effect. I don't know why that story moves me so much, but I'm getting choked up thinking about it again. Yeah, it's a very moving story, and um, you know, it's a story that a lot of people uh, have never heard and should be familiar with. And that's a part of the reason why we wanted to do this program is to introduce people to some things and remind other people of some of those very same things. A lot has passed, a lot has taken place, and in the era that we live in, Chris, and you know this as well as I do, because we're in different cities, and people may not know that, but yeah. you're, you're in, we're, we're not in the same place. Life has changed. <laughs> yeah. And our radio show years ago, we were in the same studio, but we are hundreds of miles apart right now. Not a but, thousand. <laughs> yeah, the need to do this outstrips distance. And we have the technical tools to do it, and we should do, we should do it uh, as often as possible. And the hope here is that people will understand um, 
why it's necessary to talk about these things. Where do you want this whole dialogue now to go? I mean, we know that we want people to sit down and talk. We want people of different races to sit down and talk. But at the end of the day, what do you want them to accomplish? Well, I think the main thing that we can do, and that is just to talk about it. And I think that there, you and I have heard from mutual friends since we decided we were going to do this, who said that they just literally breathed the sigh of relief when they heard that we were going to do this, because I think everybody instinctively understands that you don't fix problems if you don't address them. And, and, you know, this is the big elephant in the room. And yet, um, you know, there are very few, you're one of the few black people I know that I can very comfortably sit down and say, hey, let's talk about this. And we've always been like that. And I think we need to make more people comfortable with it. And I don't know exactly how that's going to work. I don't, maybe I'm, that's not possible, but it should be. And I think we can aspire to it. So I, I think that's what I, I want to happen is to give people who listen to this the idea that, you know, my, my friend, I, I know him from the office. I know him from, you know, the grocery store or whatever. I'd, I'd like to begin a conversation with him. And maybe if more people do that, there'll be a, a better understanding and appreciation of each other. That's great. That is absolutely great to hear. I'm J.J. Green. And I'm black. I'm Chris Corr. And I'm white. And this is Colors. If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, email us at colors at WTOP.com. Coming up on the next episode of Colors, a voice and a face you've heard and seen many times on CBS News and Sports. James Brown. During this pandemic, the mantra is we're all in this together. I wish that behavior was evident throughout society. Sadly, we have yet another example of wanton disregard for life, especially that of black men. James Brown, coming up on the next episode of Colors. As we go, we want to thank all of those who've helped us behind the scenes. Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Greg Strassel, Hillary Howard, Brennan Hazelton, Mike Jakaitis, Liz Anderson, Lisa Weiner, Thomas Warren, Stephanie Gaines Bryant, Tiffany Arnold, Dimitri Sotis, Melissa Howell, Beth Gibbs, Kyle Cooper, and of course, Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic for our music. And thank you for listening. And remember, keep talking to each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Subscribe to Colors on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.